Good morning. Uh, like So said, if I've not met you before, my name's Ian. I lead this site with Soph. We're the site pastors here at Cardiff North. And I hope you're all well. It's great to see you guys today. Thanks for coming along. Obviously, with it being half term, plenty of people away, but it's great to see all of you guys this morning. And I'm excited for what the Lord wants to do. Uh, last week, we finished our Kingdom Carriers series, and Sophie and I preached together. And we shared with you what we feel God is leading us into as a community in Cardiff North and beyond. And if you missed it, I'd love to encourage you to catch up with it online. I don't think it's actually gone on the website just yet, but it should be going on this week. So keep an eye out for that if you missed it. But today, as, she, as Soph kind of uh, alluded to, we're beginning a new series. So over the next couple of months, we'll be delving into the Old Testament and looking at the book of Nehemiah, which I'm excited about. And we've called this series, as you can see, Nehemiah Restoring the City, which as Soph said, restoring the city is our vision as a church. That is what God has called us to in this place. And Nehemiah is a fascinating book about a man who responds to the call of God on his life, overcoming incredible odds to achieve the vision that God has placed on his heart only for it all to go wrong at the very end. It is a story filled with successes and failures, opportunities and obstacles. And ultimately, it is a story that serves to demonstrate to us that we can be all about God's mission, all about restoring the city and seeing the kingdom come. But if people don't encounter Jesus, then nothing will really change in their lives and it will all be in vain. So that might seem a little bit of a downer, but I think there is plenty that we will learn and take as we journey with Nehemiah over the next couple of months. And I'm really excited for what God wants to do. So I'd just love to pray as I kick off this talk and as we start on this new series. So I'd love to just pray with us, for you to pray with me. Lord God, I thank you for this community. I thank you for what you're doing in this community. And I just pray now that as we, as we delve into Nehemiah together over these next few weeks and months, Lord, would you speak to us? Would you show us the things that you have for us? Would we learn from what you did with Nehemiah? But would you reveal to us your mission for this city and the things that we can learn that go beyond what Nehemiah was able to see? Lord, I thank you that you sent your Holy Spirit to be with us and that you lead us, you guide us, and you are with us. So Lord, would you come and have your way this morning? Would you speak through my words this morning? And would you open, your open all of our hearts to receive what you have for us today? For your glory, amen. Amen. So I'd just like to kick off this series and this talk by giving you a bit of context, a bit of history. Uh, because this story only makes sense when we understand where it sits in the timeline. So where does Nehemiah fit in the whole story of the Bible? That's a good question. If you recall, in the Old Testament, the Israelites had been brought out of Egypt with Moses, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and then eventually they reached the Promised Land, where they set about establishing the Kingdom of Israel. Now, about a thousand years before Jesus came on the scene, the Kingdom of Israel wasn't getting on very well. There were tw 12 tribes that were named after the 12 tribes of Jacob, and they were in conflict and there was dis disunity among them. Uh, so the tribes split into two different groups. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom uh, was made up of 10 of the tribes. And this kingdom was called Israel. 
And the southern kingdom was made up of the two remaining tribes and was known as the kingdom of Judah. So we have these two kingdoms. And it might be worth me pointing out at this stage that the city of Jerusalem was found in the southern kingdom. That's a key point. I'll just hold on to that one. So for 200 years, the northern kingdom had bad king after bad king ruling them. Each one turned their back on God and started worshipping man-made idols. So God took away his favor from them and declared that his presence was with them no more. You can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 17 if you'd like to go there at some point. But then in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire came and conquered the northern kingdom. The Assyrians drove the northern Israelites out of their land and took the land as their own. And so the northern tribes were left homeless and were sent into exile. So that's the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom had its own fair share of bad kings, but it also had some good ones too. So God's favor, favor and protection remained on them for a little bit longer and, uh, than it had with the northern kingdom. And they avoided being conquered until around 587 BC when the Babylonians invaded Judah, destroying the city of Jerusalem and burning down the temple. This is recorded in 2 Chronicles, chapter 36. And in verse 19, it describes how the Babylonians set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all of the palaces and destroyed everything that was of value there. So Jerusalem was destroyed and many of the Jews had been killed. And those who survived were sent into exile in Babylon. And the Babylonians took the young men and the leaders captive and resettled them in Babylon, where they were made to be servants for the Babylonians. But 70 years after the Babylonian invasion, the Persian Empire rose to power. And Cyrus, who was king of Persia, came and conquered the Babylonians. And what was remarkable about Cyrus, the Persian king, was that he wanted to obey uh, the words of the Lord that were spoken by Jeremiah. And he gave the Jews permission to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the, the temple. So the Jews that returned were led back to Jerusalem by a man named Zerubbabel. It's a good name, isn't it? We meet Zerubbabel in the book of Ezra, which is the book that comes immediately before Jer uh, Nehemiah. And we learn that he and the returned exiles did make it back to Jerusalem and they did rebuild the temple. So it seemed as if all these things were looking good and looking up for the Jews, you know, things were on the up. But still the people refused to turn away from their sins. The temple wasn't being uh, maintained, sacrifices had ceased, and the Jews weren't concerned at all about keeping God's law. So as we reach the story of Nehemiah, that's the context. Jerusalem was still a mess. Yes, some of the exiles had returned and rebuilt the temple, but the people were living in sin and something needed to change. How are we doing? Hopefully that gives us all a little bit of a, an understanding of where this story fits in the whole story of the Bible. Okay, so let's dive into Nehemiah. And today we're going to start right at the beginning of the chapter where God gives Nehemiah a vision and puts a burden on his heart. And I've titled this talk, Burdened for the City. So if you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah 1, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you today, as Soph said, there are free Bibles out in the lobby, but don't worry because the passages, the verses will appear behind me. Uh, Soph picked up my Bible earlier. I lost Genesis from my Bible this morning. I'd already lost the front and back covers. Uh, so I might just stick to my notes before I lose any more of it. I think I'm due a new Bible. Um, 
And if you're looking for Nehemiah in your Bibles, it's quite a small book and it can be a bit tricky to find. It's in the Old Testament. It's probably about a third of the way through your Bible. So go past like Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. Skip past 1 and 2 Samuel, uh, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, and then you get to Ezra. And then after Ezra, there's Nehemiah. Uh, If you've got to Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, you've gone too far. Back up a little bit. Uh, So let's take a look at chapter 1 which in my Bible is titled Nehemiah's Prayer, starting with verses 1 to 4. So the words of Nehemiah, son of, at the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah and some other men, with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So I'd just like to stop there for a moment. What do we learn from these first four verses? The first thing we discover is that, perhaps unsurprisingly, the book of Nehemiah is written by none other than Nehemiah. You know, the clue is in the name, isn't it? And, and so the story is told by Nehemiah, and this book is written from his perspective. And something I discovered as I was preparing this talk is that the name Nehemiah in Hebrew would actually be pre- pronounced, try and get this right, Nehemiah. Nehemiah, I think it's on the screen. Nehemiah, you can see how that becomes Nehemiah. And this is a composite pronoun, which means this is a name that is made up of two parts. And the Yah at the end is the shortened version of the name Yahweh, which was God's name in the Old Testament. And the Nehem is the Hebrew word for comfort. So what this name means, Nehemiah means comfort of Yahweh or Yahweh comforts. And I think this is an interesting beginning to this story because as the Jewish people found themselves in chaos and turmoil, God called a man whose name signifies that he, Yahweh, would bring them comfort. Isn't that an interesting start to this story? And we also learn from the opening verse that Nehemiah wasn't living in Jerusalem at the time this story begins. He was actually living in the city of Susa in Persia. And this is an important detail which we'll come to in a moment. Then in verse 3, we see how Nehemiah learns from his brother that even though the Jews had been allowed to return to Jerusalem, the destruction of the city's walls had left its people exposed to great trouble and shame. You see, there was no protection for the city. The city had no walls, and this was a huge deal. Because at that time, a city with broken walls revealed a defeated people. A city with broken walls revealed a defeated people. And defeated people were vulnerable and disgraced by by what had happened. So Nehemiah receives this news, and then we see his response. Uh, He's burdened by it. In verse 4, it says, Nehemiah says, When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. And this is an interesting response. Was it the response of every Jew who had not yet returned to Jerusalem when they heard this news? Probably not. 
The reason that why we're being told Nehemiah's story is because he responded differently to so many others. He was significantly moved by um, the set of circumstances that he was hearing about. And when Nehemiah heard this news, something broke within him. God broke his heart for what was going on. He wept about the situation. You know, have you had an experience like this before? When was the last time you were so moved by something that it brought you to tears? And I'm not just talking about anything that made you cry. Uh, Soph and I love watching MasterChef when it's on. And one of my favorite moments was watching John Tarode, who's one of the judges, um, being brought to tears as he ate an apple crumble. And it was just, he was so overcome with, with emotion because it was just so beautiful. The presentation, the flavor, the story, you know, that is not what I'm referring to here. What I'm talking about is having your heart broken for something that breaks God's heart, not an apple crumble. <laughs> Nehemiah's soul had been burdened, weighed down by what he'd heard. Uh, concern over Jerusalem had consumed him. He was burdened by this news, burdened for the people, burdened for the city. So let me ask you, what are you burdened for right now? Do you have a burden for the place where you work? or maybe the neighborhood where you live. Perhaps your heart is broken for a specific person or a group of people or a need that you see in society. As you go out, you see this day in, day out, and it breaks your heart. What is God breaking your heart for? And if you don't know the answer to that question, that's okay. Throughout this series, we have an opportunity to consider what it looks like for each of us to play our part in restoring this city. And the story of Nehemiah shows us that often when we, dis- often we discover our personal calling uh, in what stirs our hearts. That's where we discover our calling, in what God stirs our hearts for, by identifying those things that causes, our, causes us to weep. So Nehemiah was burdened for the city, but he wasn't even there in Jerusalem. He lived miles away at this time in Persia. What could he possibly do to help this situation? It didn't seem like he could do anything, did it? At that point, he could have just pushed it down, bottled it up, and tried to ignore it. But he didn't. He didn't become inactive. No. Instead, he prayed. So let's take a look at um, Nehemiah's prayer, which starts in verse 5. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands, decrees, and laws you gave to your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will give them, I will gather them from there and bring them to a place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, who you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. 
That's Nehemiah's prayer. And the key lesson here, I think, is that when we become burdened and our hearts are moved by something, the first thing we should do is pray. And there are three things that I want to draw out from Nehemiah's prayer and invite us to consider this morning. Why does Nehemiah pray? Who does he pray to? And what does he pray for? So let's just take a look at these one by one. Firstly, why does Nehemiah pray? I think it's fair to say that he simply didn't know what else to do. Have you ever felt like that? There is, you know, there is so much injustice in this world, isn't there? Things that may frustrate us or upset us that are going on across the world or right on our doorstep. There is so much um, injustice. And have you ever felt like uh, you want to change something, but you just don't know how? What can I do in my own strength? Nehemiah could have decided to just sit there and stew. He could have spent his time moping around and complaining. Or he could have tried to work out all the things he could do in his own human strength to try and fix things. And I think we've all probably been there in different situations, haven't we? In one time in life or another. But often, this doesn't get us very far. There's only so much that we can actually do and achieve in our, on our own. We need to get God involved. And Mark Batterson, in his book, The Circle Maker, says, if you seek answers, you won't find them. But if you seek God, the answers will find you. That's a good quote, isn't it? And so we pray. We pray. And you know what? When we start to pray, that's when a burden for something can become a vision. Uh, that's when God can put something on our hearts and show us a way that we can actually help. Often God stirs our hearts through a burden and then grows that burden into a vision. I've heard it said before that vision is best described as a picture of a preferred future. That's what a vision is, a picture of, of a better future, what could be that isn't currently. It starts in a place of seeing something and feeling like this just is not right, having a holy discontent for this situation. And it leads us to imagine what could be. We see something that's wrong, we think, this could be better. And we think, how could it be improved and how can we play our parts? And I'm not talking about a brief momentary prayer. I'm referring to a season of intentionally praying, pressing in and seeking God. It says that Nehemiah fasted as well as prayed. And Soph and I were really encouraged uh, to hear about a lady who's in our central site who has been... Um, praying for the women on her street for the past year or so. She felt led to pray for community to grow in her area and has one by one got to know the ladies in her neighborhood. And a few weeks ago, having put together a WhatsApp group with all these ladies, they were going out for curry together for the first time as a group. She was burdened um, by God for the people on her street. She saw an opportunity, prayed regularly. She walked up and down the street praying for her neighbors, not directly, but just as she walked, praying for them. And now that vision of community is starting to become a reality, and she's integral and involved in that. I love how simple that is. She just had this burden and started to walk and pray and get to know some women, and now she's seeing the fruit of what God's doing. So why does Nehemiah pray? Because prayer is the place where burden becomes vision. Prayer is the place where burden becomes vision. So the second question is, who does Nehemiah pray to? If we look at how he begins his prayer in verse 5, Then I said, 
O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah starts by remembering who God is, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said that we should start our prayer with our Father. Do you see the, the parallel here? In the same way that Nehemiah begins his prayer by reminding himself who God is, Jesus tells us to start our prayers by reflecting on God as our Father. There's a symmetry in those things. And why is this important? Because it reminds us that God is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who is in control. He is good, he is kind, and he is faithful. And when we pray from a place of knowing who God is, it changes our prayers. It changes the way that we pray. When we pray to the God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, it gives us boldness. That's Ephesians 3.20. Jesus taught that with man, some things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Knowing that God is with us provides us with confidence, strength, and reassurance that even the seemingly impossible can be made possible. So back to Nehemiah's prayer. And in verse 8 and 9, he recalls, um, he also recalls the promises that God made to Moses. So let's have a read. He says, Remember the instruction you gave to your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place that I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So first we see Nehemiah declare who God is and what he's like. And now he speaks of the promises that God has made. Why does he go into the history of what God has said and done before? Because it's a reminder of God's faithfulness. Remembering what God has done and the promises that he's made gives us hope for the future. You know, it seems like Nehemiah is reminding God of his promises, as if God might have forgotten about them. But in reality, he's also reminding himself in that moment. Because remembering God's faithfulness acts as a springboard to us to give us hope and expectation for what is to come. There is a biblical principle of remembering that we learn about. Throughout the Old Testament, God asks his people uh, to mark key events with festivals and celebrations. As you read through the, the Bible, you're like, man, these guys have a lot of festivals, a lot of parties. Why are they doing that? It's because God wants to take those moments as an opportunity for them to remember what he has done in the past. And just before Jesus went to the cross, he asked his disciples to um, break bread and drink wine in remembrance of him whenever they met together. So in Psalm 77, the writer is distressed and searching for God's favor, wondering if things would ever be good again. Here's an example of this. And then in verses 10 to 12, he says this. Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his hand, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. This is what the writer of Psalm 77 is doing. He's remembering what God has done. Because in the same way that reminding ourselves of God's character, in the same way that that gives us boldness and confidence, remembering and recognizing all that God has done and promised in our own lives, but also in the lives of other people, gives us hope and expectation for what he will do in the future. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can hold on to that truth. 
So we pray because that's where a burden can become a vision. And we pray to the God who makes all things possible. And finally, what do we pray for? There are two specific things that Nehemiah then prays for. Let's take a look at verse 11, where Nehemiah says this. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Firstly, Nehemiah prays for an opportunity for success in sharing his vision. And secondly, he prays that the Lord would grant him favor in the presence of a man. And the, the first question that we're all thinking is, what man? And Nehemiah's like, oh yeah, sorry guys, let me get to that. And he adds this detail at the end of chapter one that might have appeared on the screen. He says, I was cupbearer to the king. I was cupbearer to the king. So right here at the end of chapter one, we find out that the time when he received this news about Jerusalem and was burdened by it, Nehemiah's job was as cupbearer to the king of Persia. And as cupbearer, Nehemiah would have had to sample all the king's food and drink all of the king's wine to make sure um, that it was safe. Now, I can't decide whether this is a good job or not. Uh, I suppose it depends on whether uh, someone's trying to poison the king. You know, because if they are, then it's a terrible job. You do not want this job if the wine's poisoned. But, But if they don't, then you get to eat some incredible food and you get to taste some amazing wine. What a win. What a job. But then I'm guessing that if the food is fine, then you only get to have a tiny mouthful of that food or a tiny sip of that wine before it gets taken away. Wouldn't that just be torture? Uh, Being allowed to have one mouthful of this delicious food of the king before they take it away. If it was me, I'd just be like, oh, it's terrible. Oh, yeah, it's definitely poisoned. Um, I'm just going to have to finish this myself. Uh, The jury's still out for me on whether being a cupbearer is a good job. But the point is that Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. He was not the person that you would expect um, God to call to rebuild the walls of the city. And he wasn't in a position to do so either. In that moment, it would have been um, far easier for Nehemiah to disqualify himself. Because on the face of it, he wasn't up to the job. He didn't, have, he didn't appear to have the skills or experience or even the freedom to do what God was putting on his heart. And in a similar way, sometimes I think it can be really easy for us to disqualify ourselves too and say, well, maybe I just heard it wrong. Maybe I just heard God wrong. Surely God wouldn't want to use me. What could I possibly do to make a difference in this situation? We write ourselves off because we don't see what God sees. But when God calls us one by one, he does so knowing exactly what we're each capable of. He sees the end from the beginning. He knows exactly why he's placed us where he has. And it might not make sense to us, but we have to trust that God knows best. Nehemiah was just the cupbearer to the king, but he was actually exactly where he needed to be. God had positioned him exactly where he wanted him. He had access to the king. Who else had that? And that presented Nehemiah with an amazing opportunity. I think it can be easy, can't it, to overlook the fact that God has positioned us where he's put us for a reason. In our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, he's placed us there. And we might feel like we don't have a lot to offer. 
or are limited by our current position in life. But God can take what we have exactly where we're at and use it for his purposes. It's about what we can do, what he can do through us, not what we can do through our own strength. The reality is that often when God is calling us to something, it will almost certainly be beyond our own means. If God is calling us to calling us to something, then we need him. If it's achievable in our own human effort, then it doesn't require faith. And it's probably not the thing that God's calling you to. When God calls us to a vision, we can be confident that he will provide the resources. You know, Soph and I have this uh, lovely print hung up in our house, and it's a paraphrase of Isaiah 58:11, And it simply says, where God guides, he provides. Where God guides, he provides. Time after time, we see that this is true throughout the Bible. And time after time, we've experienced this in our own lives. And I hope you've seen this in your lives too. Boldly pursuing a God-given vision that is beyond our means can feel like we're setting ourselves up for failure. But in reality, we're setting God up for a miracle. We can trust that if he's ordered it, he'll pay for it too. If he's ordered it, he'll pay for it. Now, Nehemiah was burdened for the city of Jerusalem. In that moment, there was nothing he could do but fast and pray. And as he did, God birthed an amazing vision within him to restore the city's walls. When God calls you to something that seems so far beyond uh, what you be- who you believe yourself to be and what you believe yourself to be capable of, that seems so far from your current situation, you can either give up and forget about it, or like Nehemiah, you can pray for opportunities and favor to step into what God is calling you to. And next week, in the second part of this series, we'll see how God answers Nehemiah's prayers and grants him both opportunity and favor with the king. But as I come in to the end of this talk, I'd just like to return to this idea of being burdened for the city and bring it back to this community and our hearts. What is God breaking your heart for? What is he breaking your heart for? If you don't know how to answer that question, as I said, that's totally fine. But the invitation to us is to get down on our knees and pray. Pray to God. What is breaking your heart, Lord? Throughout this series, we'll continue to explore what it looks like to be burdened for this city and the places where God has placed you. And to consider what it looks like for each of us to play our part in restoring the city. Maybe it's time that God wants to birth a new burden in your heart. Or maybe he wants to take the, uh, your burden and turn it into vision of what could be. Or perhaps you've been carrying a burden and God's given you the vision for it. And now is the time to pray for opportunities to share that vision and have favor with those that you share it with. Whatever stage of this you feel like you're at, we would love to pray with you. So if you're able to, why don't you stand?